You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth And we will praise Jesus' name We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it Although it don't bring much fame Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it But God's word will always stand true Hello, friends and faithful listeners. It's time for the Pod King Bible Study. And I'm your co-host, Donald King, and I'm joined by the host of this study, Brother Donnie King. On this podcast, we study the Bible from its original languages so we can understand the Word of God more clearly. We look at current events and news and light of Scripture. We also examine some of the things going on within our culture from a biblical perspective. This is Monday, February the 19th, episode number 156, The Truth Makes You Free, John 8, 31 through 42. In our last episode, we were thrilled to present you our 16th Q&A. This episode is packed with tough questions such as where the altar came from that Elijah rebuilt. If each child has their own personal angel that watches over them, if the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit are the same thing. And then our child's question was concerning whether or not Samson broke his vow by touching the jawbone of an ass. If you can tell, these queries were not the easiest ones to give an answer to, but we gave it our best shot as always. We feel certain that you will love this show, so come on along with us for a wild ride on the Pod King Bible Study. In today's study, we rehash those verses where Jesus told the people that they were his disciples if they continued in his word, and if they know the truth, the truth will make them free. Then we speak of how the Jews argued that they had never been in bondage to anyone because they are children of Abraham. Jesus rebuffed them by telling them if they were children of Abraham, they wouldn't be seeking to kill him. As always, this riled the Jews greatly, and they began getting very volatile toward Christ. We believe this episode will open your eyes to some things, but you must listen to it first before that can happen. Come along with us now for an exciting journey in John's gospel. Now for the teaching of God's word and the lesson for today, turn it to the host of this podcast, Brother Donnie King. I want to extend my warmest regards to all of you who have decided to attend this special gathering of Bible studiers today. Well, I would think he's trying to say thank you for all those who have tuned in today. Well, that's what I said. You don't have to repeat everything I say. Well, I wasn't repeating you. I was actually trying to interpret what you said. Okay, so now I need an interpreter to do this Bible study. Maybe I've been talking too much about the Greek and Hebrew word meanings after all. Well, didn't Paul insinuate in 1 Corinthians 14 that he'd rather speak five words that people could understand rather than 10,000 that they couldn't understand? Now here you are quoting scriptures to take me down a notch. Well, I'm just trying to give you the truth. You know, it'll make you free. <laughs> yeah, that's what I've heard. <laughs> I'll have to admit that I like the way you played that, working the title into this. Well, yeah, I'm trying to sharpen my game just a little bit. Well, good. Hopefully there won't be any more dull moments coming from you from now on. Well, are you saying I've been boring on this show already? <laughs> I never one time said that. Well, considering how much I get paid to do this, I feel like you're getting a pretty good deal, boy. Uh, you don't get paid anything. <laughs> See? Well, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, okay. For the money, you're the best help I can afford. <laughs> wow. That was a pretty hard slam right there. Well, remember the truth will make you free. And boy, right now I'm feeling free as a breeze. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, this is why people need to know how to rightly divide Scripture, too, so they don't use it to their own advantage. All right. Now that I have you ready to discuss Scriptures and how to rightly divide them, I might as well go ahead and read our text for today and read the whole passage. I'm going to read John 8 and 31 down through 42 to get us started. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, Ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then they said unto him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself. So in verse 31 and 32, Jesus is telling those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Then he says that most famous phrase that we like talking about, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We're not told how John knew that there were many people who believed on Jesus that day. Somehow it was obvious. Maybe they expressed this by a vocal confirmation. Maybe they did this by agreeing with him in some form. I, I don't really know. Yeah, but either way, you know, John told us that the following statement was given to the people who believed by Jesus. Yeah, and the Lord gave the people an if-then scenario also. And this lets me know right here that when you give that kind of a scenario, there's a little doubt of if they're true believers or not. And so he's giving them an if-then clause. How about explain to the audience what you mean by an if-then statement? Well, these if-then scenarios are similar to the fine writing at the bottom of a contract. There's an expected outcome if you do something, and there's an expected outcome if you don't do the thing. Make it a little more specific and point out the part of this verse that makes the if-then here. What Jesus was telling them, if you will continue in my word, then and only then will you truly be his disciple. If you don't continue in his word, then you're not his disciple. You can choose not to continue in his word, but you're also choosing not to be his disciple. This should tell us all that there is something that is being required of anyone who professes faith in Christ. There is an expected action that must follow your profession of faith. That's exactly right. And you're born again by placing your faith in Christ, but to truly be his disciple, you must continue in that belief and in his word. To me, it's very similar to John 15 and 8, where he says that we must bear fruit in order to be considered as his disciple. We're not just claiming that we're something and having nothing to show for. He's looking for fruits of our labor. Yeah, you know, when we continue in his word, we're showing that we are his disciples in deed and action. It's at that point that we'll know the truth. And by knowing the truth, we're made free. Yeah, that's where I'm planning to go next, because we see this mentioned in a couple of different places. Once again, in just a couple of verses, verse 36 of John 8, and then once again in Romans 8 and 2. I'm going to read them to you in John 8 and 36 will be first. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. 
Romans 8 and 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Interestingly enough, the word of Christ is said to be truth. So the word we believe is the very thing that sets us free. Don't forget that Jesus is the truth, and he is the one whose word we are to believe, and the one who also sets us free. That's right. The one who sets you free is a redeemer, the rescuer, the savior. Yeah, and we could keep on with the list of names <laughs> right there because he's our everything. Yeah. I want to anchor down on the word continue for just a moment, because to me, this is one of the hinge points of this verse. Ye are my disciple if you continue in my word. That's that's the point right here. As long as we're continuing, then we're still a disciple. It's the Greek word mino. Mino means to stay, to remain, or to abide. So let me give this to you in all of these optional ways. We are to abide in his word. We are to stay with his word. We are to remain in his word. We are to live in his word, if you will. And if we'll do this, then we have the promise of being set free. Yes, and as the Greek word eleutero is defined, we'll be liberated. That's what he was saying when he used the word, and you shall be free, you shall be liberated. And so where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, according to 2 Corinthians 3 and 17. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Well, you know, anyone can claim to believe on Christ, but you can tell if they're genuine but whether or not they stick with their belief and his word or not. If they are not truly free from all bondage, they've not been set free. That's right. You can't still be bound and be free at the same time. That's right. Now, Paul was bound in a sense that he was bound by chains around his arms and around his legs, holding him in stocks and bonds. But he was still free in his heart and his spirit and his soul. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about being in bondage to the elements of this world and to Satan. And if you're not freed from that, you cannot be saved. That's what being saved is. You're being set free from the oppression of the enemy. There's an element in this that John recorded that implies these people believed in him. You know, it just said, hey, and there was some in the crowd that believed on him. Many also believed on him. But it appears that they had yet to believe on him as their savior. They were believing in him that he was able to do miracles. They were believing that he was a good man, but they weren't believing unto salvation. I believe this is why Jesus said, if you continue, if you'll continue in your belief, if you'll keep on believing like you are right now, you will come to the saving knowledge that you need because being temporarily moved, it's not enough to make it. So doesn't this prove that they only believed in what he could do, not on who he was? That's the thing that we need to be careful about. We need to be careful that we just don't believe in him for what he can do. We need to believe on who he is. He is able to do the things he does because of who he is. This is how he knows that we are his disciples indeed, and it's verily by our actions. It's by the fruits that we're putting forth. If you have bad fruits, then you're not one of his. If you have good fruit, then it shows that you're connected to the vine and you're bringing forth fruit like Christ himself would. Let's go ahead and look at verse 33 and 34 together. They answered him, we be Abraham's seed, and we were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. If you'll notice, he's pointing to the fact that he's not talking about being bound to a group of people. He's not talking about being bound to some kind of commitment. He's talking about being bound to sin. And if you're bound to sin, you're bound to Satan. 
Jesus is preaching a message of deliverance to these Jewish people, which seems to be the ones who said that they believed, but now they're getting angry and they resort to proving their true spirituality. They did this by appealing to being the seed of Abraham. In other words, they are real Jews. Yeah, they were real Jews, and they was trying to use Abraham to gain some status right here. But in Matthew 3 and 9, Jesus told them not to claim that they're Abraham's seed in an effort to try and prove that they're right. Your lineage doesn't save you. Lineage has never saved anyone. Your genealogy won't bring you through. Faith and belief in Jesus Christ does, though. Well, Abraham wasn't declared righteous because he was a Jew. He was declared righteous because he believed God and he had faith. That's right. And we've got a little problem with this in our holiness and Pentecostal churches. If you come from the right church, if you come from the right family, if you're in the right fellowship, if you have the right clique, you're all right. I don't think that it should have ever been that way in any group, much less in anyone who claims to be of Christ. Yes, you're a believer. There's others that's not. But hey, our job is to make sure they become believers, not that we're better than them. That's right. You know, I find it interesting that in John 8 and 37, Jesus told them that he knows they are the seed of Abraham in the natural. But then in John 8 and 39, he tells them that Abraham is not their father. What do you reckon they thought about that? Yeah, that's a good point, and I'm sure it made them very, very angry. But the very thing is, we got to remember, verse 39 is spoken of in the spiritual sense. So he's acknowledging in the natural, yeah, you are children of Abraham, you're actual Jews. But then verse 39, he's letting them know, you're not one of the children of Abraham. True children of Abraham would believe God. They reason with Christ that they've never been in bondage to any man, and this is supposedly because they're Abraham's seed. To me, this is one of the most preposterous statements I've ever heard any of them use in an argument with Jesus. They said, we've never been in bondage to any man. Really? Really? They'd been in exile to Egypt. Had they forgot the 400 years of bondage? They'd been in exile to Babylon. They just had came back from Babylon and Chaldea. They were led away by the Assyrians, by the Persians, by Greece. They had been occupied by Rome. As a matter of fact, at the time of this speech that Jesus has given to them, Jerusalem is occupied by Rome. They're under Caesars and under all of these different prefects, and they're saying, we've never been in bondage to any man. They were liars. <laughs> you know, I don't guess I've ever picked up on this, but that's ridiculous. It is. To top it all off, they were also in bondage to Satan through their unbelief as well. They're questioning what all he had to say, and they're trying to go so far out of the way to prove him wrong, they're making themselves liars. They question his declaration that they could be set free. Why do you say we could be made free? We're not in bondage to anyone. You know, they must have felt pretty smug with all their pride oozing into the conversation. Yeah. Well, it was either that or they simply lied to his face. They knew better than that, you know, but they seemed to be determined to stand on their heritage, the lineage, and the Jewish excellence. Yeah, but Jesus cuts them to the heart immediately by telling him, if you commit sin, you're the servant of sin. Well, rather than argue with genealogy, Jesus pointed to the root of the problem, their wicked hearts. That's it. That's exactly where they were bound at, too. They may not have been physically bound, but they were spiritually bound in their heart. Paul and Peter both used this kind of teaching when they wrote different epistles. In Romans 6 and 16, Paul says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? 2 Peter 2 and 19, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. 
As a matter of fact, the word we see in our English as servant, it isn't as strong as it is in the Greek. Jesus used the Greek word dolos, which means one in bonds or a slave. Well, they're not just servants of sin. They were bound in sin. They are not just someone hired in that has a job to do. They're a slave to do whatever their master told them to do. It's because of their response right here that I say that they did not truly believe in him. Well, you could tell by what they say that they'd never become his disciples indeed. No, they were living in denial of their spiritual condition right then, and they were seeking justification through being the descendants of Abraham rather than through Jesus Christ. You know, this is a real problem for people who grew up in church. Some feel entitled and superior. That's exactly right. And that's what I was mentioning a while ago. If you're not careful, you'll get to looking down on everybody else that they're not near as good as you are. But Uh the fact of the matter is, is if it wasn't for Christ, none of us would be anything. Amen. Going into verse 35 and 36, Jesus said, And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus said the servant doesn't abide in the house forever. This ties in with the narrative of what was going on in Genesis 21 and 10. Wherefore, she said unto Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. A Hebrew slave was to serve for six years and then go free in the seventh year. This is one of the ways this is meant to be understood. Let her go free. Just cast her out. We don't have to keep her. She's one of those that are bound. Let her go. We are of those that are free. Well, a slave could be sold, exchanged, or cast out at any time, couldn't they? They could, and that that's the point right there. A slave can be dismissed easily. You don't just kick a son out of the house. He's right. got a right to be there. We see that the one who doesn't have the promise is the same as a bondservant. If you're not one of Jesus Christ's believers, then you have the position of a bondservant. You're not his. You're a servant to someone else. But those that serve him has the place of a son in the house, even though they're really a servant. He makes them a son. This is illustrated by Paul in the Isaac and Ishmael dispute. Over in Galatians 4 and 30, Paul asks, says, what does the scripture say? Or I think it says more like, nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. The servant might not abide in the house forever, but the son does. That's what Jesus said. And we see in a few places the difference between the place of a servant and the place of a son. Everybody remembers Luke 15. Remember when the prodigal son came home and the elder brother, he got upset. And so he wouldn't even come in that night. So the father goes out and he's talking to him. And the son says, hey, you killed for him the fatted calf and you never pitched a party for me. And he finally looks at him and says, son. You've ever been with me, and all that I have is thine. That's the position of the son. That's the position of the son. If you're in the house, if you're part of the father's family, everything that he has is yours. Hebrews 3 and 6, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if, here's your if again, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm until the end. As long as you keep living for God and you stay in the house, you're one of the sons you get the rights of inheritance. John 8 and 35, and the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. Well, what is the reasoning behind the difference here? Well, it's because the son actually holds the power of inheritance. The slave ain't going to get the inheritance. He's just working to help keep the thing going, but the son is going to inherit it all. The servant is also owned as property by the householder. Yeah, membership in the family by birth is much superior to being in the family by obligation. 
Yeah, well, that, that that's a good point because, you know, you could grab somebody on the market that was being sold as a slave, and it doesn't matter if they wanted to be or not. You put them into your family as a slave. But a person that is a son, they're born into the family, and they have the rights of inheritance. This is what makes all of the difference in the following statement that Jesus makes. If the son, that one that's part of the home, part of the house, if he shall make you free, then you're free indeed. If the son says, hey, you're a free man, you can go. It doesn't matter what anybody else says, you're made free. The son has the power to redeem. The son has power to set free. The son has power to deliver just like the father does. Paul makes a similar allusion in Galatians 5 and 1 where he claims that Christ makes us free or gives us liberty and we're to stand in that liberty. Remember, he said, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. Well, Paul also said that since we've been set free, we're not to be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. This means we're to never become a slave again. That's exactly right. And interestingly enough, people love the prodigal son story because it appears that the son who was so far gone was still received back as a son. The intriguing part is that the elder son basically denied his birth privilege. Oh, really? Now, how do you get that from this setting? Well, he did that by stating that he served his father all those years. You catch that? He didn't say, Father, I've helped you all these years. He said, I've been serving you all these years. That means that he viewed himself as a slave. He didn't view himself as free. Now, listen, Luke 15, 29. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. I've been working. I've been slaving for you. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. That makes sense. But, you know, I've never looked at it that way before. But this is something we need to watch out for in our lives. We should never feel like that we are slaving away for God because we're privileged as sons. That's exactly right. Let's look at John 8 and 37 and 38. I know that you're Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. As we noted already earlier, Jesus acknowledged that these Jews were the seed of Abraham, but only in the natural. Paul said that the true promised seed was in Isaac, didn't he? That's right. And let me look that up. This is in Romans 9. Let me go down here. Let's see. Yeah, verse 7. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Jesus exposed their desire to kill him, and that proved that they're not part of the true family of God. You wouldn't want to kill your true blood brother if you knew who he was. And so when he exposed their desire to kill him, which is really astonishing, what's astonishing about this is these are those who were said to believe in him. Yeah, you know, he had exposed them for the same thing back in John 7 and 19. He sure did. He told them that he speaks what he has seen with his father. Then he explained, that's what you're doing as well. You're only doing what you see your father do. His accusation of them having a different father than he had was very telling. It sure was. And we'll see him get much more plainer in verse 41 and in 44. This is why the word of Christ had no place in them. In the Greek, that's choreo. And it's defined as no point of entry. He said, my word has no place in you. It has no point of entry. I have tried to get my word to you, but you keep rejecting it. They would not allow his word to enter into them. So I guess we could actually say that they rejected him and his word. Amen. Let's look at verse 39 and 40. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. 
Jesus saith unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. These Jews begin to sound a little irate. So they tell Jesus that Abraham is their father. Yeah, but Jesus doesn't accept that for a minute because he told him, if you were Abraham's children, you'd do the works of Abraham. Jesus uses another conditional clause right here in the same verse. If you were Abraham's children, you would act like Abraham. My goodness. There are several of them right through this section, aren't there? There are. There's three conditional clauses in this exchange between Jesus and the Jews in John 8. You'll find them in verse 31, 36, and 39. And those are, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed. If the Son makes you free, then you're free indeed. If you were Abraham's children, then you would act like Abraham. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) just to put it in plainer language, Jesus was telling them that they should act like Abraham, and they should also believe like Abraham. He said this because they were seeking to kill him. The point is that Abraham believed in and followed the Lord. Yes, he did. And here's proof that they did not believe, and they also desired to kill the Lord. Now, before we go any further, I want to point this out. I know the Bible says that they did believe. Some may be taking issue with that and saying, well, the Bible says they believed. Well, they did. At that point, there was a form of belief that had started within them. But then when the conversation got tougher and they couldn't really receive it, or actually they wouldn't really receive it, it shows that their belief stalled out. They were not true believers. They had a form of belief. And if they had kept on in that belief, as Jesus said, they'd have really been his disciples. But they proved right here they were not his disciples. Jesus calls himself a man who has told these Jews the truth. This is a terrible indictment upon them because they were seeking to kill an innocent man. Yeah, they sought to kill one whose only wrong was telling them the truth. This truth he shared with them is what he had heard from God. Amen. Jesus tells them that Abraham didn't do this, nor anything close to this. Their physical descent was from Abraham. But what matters most is their spiritual descent. By them being descendants of Abraham, this didn't automatically guarantee them the promises of Abraham on that basis alone. That's right. Yeah, You know, you can't be born into Christianity. You must be born again into it. Amen. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And this is what it takes to inherit the promises given to Abraham as well. This is mentioned in several places, and I want to read you three of the most prominent. Romans 4 and 3. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Galatians 3 and 6 says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. James 2 and 23, And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Well, you know, you could say it this way. Our belief matters more to God than our bloodline does. Oh, I like it. I like it. That's, yeah. that's 100% correct, too. All right, let's read the last two verses and go through 41 and 42. Ye do the deeds of your father. They said to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Jesus pushes back on them by telling them that they do the deeds of their true father. Well, they have claimed Abraham as their father, but now Jesus claims they have a different father. Yeah, and for someone to tell you that they know your father better than you do, there's only a couple of ways that this could be understood. Number one, the person who makes this claim is crazy and they don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) Or number two, they have superior knowledge that can only come from God. 
you and I both know which it is, but we also understand what the Jews believed about him. Yeah, and the crowd definitely seemed to understand his point because they declared that they were not born of fornication. Now, that is an interesting point made right here. Yeah, and I believe that this may have two or more meanings that we need to consider for just a moment. Number one, this might be a reference back to several other Old Testament scriptures dealing with Israel's apostasy away from the Lord. Exodus 34 and 15 says, Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring after other gods, and do sacrifice under their gods, and one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice. This is showing that they could leave being a son by apostasy. Hosea 2 and 4, And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. They may be thinking that he's saying this about them. Well, I think that is a solid possibility because it fits the situation pretty well. It does, but listen to the second option. The second option is that they may feel that Jesus has just accused them of being bastards and not sons. Oh, my. Yeah, I can definitely see this as being possible, too. Well, the third option, listen to this. This might have been a slap at Jesus's family because it really looked like Mary and Joseph had Jesus out of wedlock, and they may have been throwing this up to his face. Their wedding had not been consummated before she was seen with child. Therefore, it appeared that they had committed fornication. So they may have been making an implication that Jesus was an illegitimate child. Great day. I can honestly see all three of these options as very possible. But the last one is the most disturbing. Can you imagine calling the son of God an illegitimate child? No joke. And this is the group of people that was supposed to be believers in him at one point. The crowd claimed they only had one father, which is God. To me, I find this really interesting for a couple of different reasons. They had just been arguing for the last little bit that Abraham was their father. Now they say they only have one father, and that's God. <laughs> yeah, reckon how they would have explained this sudden change in their argument. Yeah, it's extremely unusual because the Jews really weren't fond of claiming God as their father. Yeah, well, wasn't this one of the Lord's Prayer was a little shocking and hard for the disciples to receive? It was because they weren't used to looking at God as a father. They looked at him as the Lord or as, as the one that's way above us all. We, we're nowhere near him. Jesus plainly tells them that if God were their father, they would love him. True. For they most certainly would not have been seeking to kill him. Amen. And this is another conditional clause right here. If God were your father, you would love me. This is restated by John in 1 John 5 and 1, where he says that if you love God, you will love the one he has sent. Well, you know, Jesus goes on farther and says that he came forth from God. He said that he didn't come of himself. Then he said that God sent him. These are three specific things that they would have had to refute in order to not believe in him. That's right. How could they prove that he didn't come forth from God or that God sent him? That's right. If they could prove these things wrong, then they could prove that he came of his own as well. But as always, Jesus was impossible to beat in a debate or argument, for he is the word. And as we'll see next week, Lord willing, he proved this to them more so than he even has at this point. Amen. All right, Brother Donnie, we got time. We got a question here. You ready for it? I believe so. Let's go with it. All right. What are your thoughts on 1 John five sixteen and the sin unto death and the sin not unto death? Well, I have a lot of thoughts about this verse, <laughs> but I'd rather tell you what I think the Bible's saying about it than my thoughts. This is one of those questions that have baffled people for years, and it stumped some of the brightest minds among scholars as well. I'm saying all of this to let you know, I'm not claiming that me of all people, I have finally found the real answer. I do have some strong feelings about this, and I'm going to share that with you. 
there are people who believe that this is speaking of particular sins that could cause disease and eventually death to the one who committed the sin. Now, I said there are people who believe that. I myself, I'm not a big fan of this idea. In other words, then doing drugs could possibly be this sin because, you know, you do enough drugs, it puts you in bad shape, it destroys your lungs, different parts of your body, you get sick, and then you die from it. I don't believe that doing drugs is the sin unto death. No. Okay. I don't believe no matter what you want to put in there, if it's something that you're doing, if it causes you to get sick and then die, I don't really believe that's what it's saying. There's a few people who believe this is a reference to someone being excommunicated from the local body of believers. But to me, this is stretching the context way too far because the reason they say that is because you were viewed as dead to the congregation. If they had to kick you out, you were dead to that group. You could never rejoin it. And so that was a sin unto death. I think you're just having to pull that just way too far. I think one thing that would help us in understanding this verse, and it would basically settle the whole argument, is this speaking of a natural death or a spiritual death? That would really help us right here because too many people look at it from a natural lens. I really think there's a spiritual meaning in here. Okay, some people believe that this is speaking of the sin of blasphemy or the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. I think that's a good possibility. It's the best out of the ones I've mentioned thus far. Others feel that this is talking about being turned over to a reprobate mind. When God gives you up, you're given up. There's no chance of coming back. I also think that this is a definite possibility as well. There are some who feels that it's connected back to the Old Testament practice where there were certain sins that if you committed them, you would literally be put to death. That means that if you stole someone's wife and had an affair with her when you were caught, you would die. That was a sin unto death. I think that under the Old Testament, that definitely would work. Some people believe that this refers to somebody who dies with an unrepented sin. That's a sin unto death. If you don't ever get forgiveness of it, then you're carrying a sin to your death. The only problem with that view is that this person has to die for the sin of not repenting. The only problem is, is the person has to die for the sin of not repenting. That's how they die. It isn't the sin that killed them. You know, I might not repent of telling a lie. And then 20 years from now, I die and never have repented over that lie. But it wasn't that sin that killed me. You see what I'm saying? Others say that this is nothing more than someone who just refuses to believe that Jesus is the Christ, and this was mainly aimed at the Jews, that since they didn't believe in him, they were cutting themselves off from ever being saved, and this was a sin unto death. They were spiritually dying by the rejection of him. In all reality, I can see several of these being possibilities. We may never fully know the exact thing John had in his mind or what he was thinking when he wrote this letter. But I do believe we can settle a few things right here. If you blaspheme the Holy Ghost, you probably will never have another chance of being saved according to Scripture. If you're turned over to a reprobate mind, there will never be any repentance for you. You cannot be forgiven of your sin. Therefore, those are sins unto death. If you are sentenced to death for your sin, you could say in a sense it was a sin unto death. If you reject Jesus as your Savior, this is a sin that will result in your eternal death. All sin is bad, all sin is wrong, and all sin will take your soul to hell. Not all sins, though, will cut you off from being able to be saved. So stay away from sin completely, but especially stay away from those that may cut off your chances of being saved, because we know for a fact that will be a sin unto death, no matter how you choose to interpret this scripture. If you die without Jesus as your Savior, that is a sin unto death. Amen, Brother Donnie. Good answer. 
Friends, remember, if you have a Bible question or a question regarding how news and current events or things going on in our culture or connected to Scripture, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode today, sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. Be sure and come back next Friday, February the 23rd, for special edition number 122, Holy Ground. But for me, this I know, will it change my heart all around? Put my feet back on the ground, got along. Now for heaven, I want to go. I want to go. I want to go. To that land where the milk and honey flow. Oh, I've heard of such a place. I can't go there by God's grace. Never seen it, but I know I want to go.